Black Doctors Podcast, Season 6. Hello, welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I am Steven, your host. Thank you so much for rocking with us. The show is continuing to grow and to thrive. We're getting new listeners every week. And hopefully people are learning a lot and finding this helpful and encouraging as they travel down their respective careers into careers in the healthcare-related fields. I started this with the goal of providing some representation and mentorship to medical students, to resident physicians, and have worked over the years, I can say that now, to provide content that is applicable to folks at all stages of their careers across the spectrum. This podcast is sponsored by Picmonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, Picmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Picmonic has resources for pre-med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less, but remember more. I am Steven, your host. I'm an anesthesiologist by training. I have recently com- completed a service in the Navy and returned to a fellowship in critical care medicine. Fellowship's been super busy. It's been super duper busy, but I have been able to so far keep up and continue to put out these weekly episodes. So tune in every Monday for the Black Doctors podcast. And, you know, going to do a couple things to mix things up. We have over 150 different episodes, and I know a lot of them were from the very beginning, and you may not have had a chance to listen to those episodes. So we're going to start to repeat and recycle some of those uh, best of episodes, those episodes that really had a good impact and people seem to enjoy, and we'll start to, to shuffle those through again. So, yep, going to hit some reruns. Otherwise, I'm going to continue with the same great content. And this week, I'm going to delve into something I want to start on a monthly basis. I have, in addition to my career as an anesthesiologist, I have a special passion for medical ethics. And I'm going to take an episode a month, so hopefully it'll be about 12 episodes over the year, and talk more specifically about clinical medical ethics, what it is, um, how this relates to our profession, how this relates to and affects the patients that we take care of. This week's just going to be an introduction for the most part, um, hopefully going a little deeper than the typical, you know, uh, four main principles of medical ethics, the autonomy, uh, beneficence, non-maleficence, and uh, justice, and go a little deeper, share some of my philosophy and how I've come to think the way that I do, and hopefully, you know, it may at least give you something to think about as you go into the world, interact with the patients that you serve. So I first became interested in medical ethics because of different difficult conversations that I encountered in the ICU. I loved critical care medicine. I was you know, enthralled as a medical student with learning so much about these different patients, these super sick patients, and you can dive in and look at all the lab work, the vitals, and have such an incredible impact on somebody's life when they're really at their sickest moment. You can do a lot to treat the patient. You can do a lot to treat the family members and support people that are surrounding that patient, and, you know, it, it just felt so impactful. The inevitable, however, with ICU intensive care units is the concept of death and dying because so many patients are so sick 
that it becomes a, a reality that they cannot escape, that they're not going to make it out of the hospital or they're not going to live for much longer. I saw conversations that went very well. I saw conversations that did not go well at all and were quite horrific. And one of the reasons I wanted to go into critical care medicine was to be able to have these conversations with patients and their family members and deliver unbiased, clear communication, help them make these decisions about very complex issues into life care, among others. Especially in uh, residency at the University of Chicago, we have a lot of pretty crazy cardiac cases, a lot of different issues, such as we are a center for Jehovah's Witness uh, cardiac surgery. We have a surgeon that does bloodless cardiac surgery, including heart transplantation and organ transplantation in Jehovah's Witness patients. Um, there's a lot of ethics and, and thoughts and, and comments and concepts involved with that, but that would probably take an entirely different separate episode to get into. But, you know, seeing Jehovah's Witness patients that have received uh, an organ transplant and usually they did very well, but occasionally, you know, the inability to provide blood products would lead to their demise or not being able to survive their surgery. Um, other things that, you know, presented themselves were, again, the dying process. We do a lot of mechanical circulatory support at the University of Chicago. This is mostly from my time of residency. Um, you know, do a lot of stuff in fellowship as well, but try to separate a little bit of this clinically because um, HIPAA, I don't want to talk too much about what I do currently. But with ECMO, heart-lung machine, all that mechanical circulatory support, it brings us to a new frontier when it comes to death and dying. And by that, I mean you have machines like LVADs, left ventricular assist devices or RVADs, right ventricular assist devices. These are little motors that they can either implant inside your chest or will have external to your body that continuously circulate blood. This will keep you alive indefinitely. Eventually the machine might clot or there is infection or other, other things that happen, but mechanically you're like the bionic human. You're on these devices. Um, in addition to the LVADs and RVADs, there's also ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. There we go. And, you know, you heard probably heard about this during COVID. People with COVID pneumonia, you hook up to ECMO, and this uh, allows delivery of oxygen to the body. Basically, it's the, the machine is breathing for the patient. We, on a more basic level, we have... Other devices like balloon pumps, we have ventilators, which will breathe for patients. And then there's all the medications that keep people alive, right? So we've done a really good job of artificially uh, sustaining life. I guess if we didn't do that, then I probably wouldn't have a job as an ICU doctor. But with all these advances come these questions of how do we manage death and the dying process when we can almost extend it indefinitely. How do we counsel patients on this? You know, how, who pays for these costs? I actually still don't know the answer to that. I'd have to do some digging to actually jump into that. But so again, that's something for another episode. So all these questions and working in the ICU is how I became interested in this field of clinical medical ethics. Fortunately for me at the University of Chicago, there is the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. 
Um, Dr. Mark Siegler, he's a founder of the center. He's actually an in, internal medicine slash critical care physician, and he coined the term clinical medical ethics, has written several books, has published a ton, and again, has started this McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. So the McLean Center provides a fellowship for people interested in, in medical ethics, and it's a, a year-long program. I was able to take part in this during my third year of residency, or fourth year residency, rather. The fellowship involved like a month of quote-unquote research time where we had a summer didactic session where every day we would meet, we would have lectures from philosophers, from lawyers, from clinicians of all sorts, from parishioners, and we would talk about issues that come up frequently in the realm of clinical medical ethics. Probably the in the cohort that we had was probably like 16 to 20 people from all walks of life. We had a lot of residents, a lot of physicians, but we also had some nursing um, staff. We had some uh, physical therapists. I think a physical therapist during my cohort. We had a couple of parishioners. We had people from different institutions, University of Chicago, Northwestern. There were There's even a program with the American College of Surgeons where they would have a surgical resident or fellow come from an external institution that would be paid for and funded for them to kind of take part in this program. So if that's something you're interested in, definitely check it out, the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics, and then they have a special program for surgery residents. So we did a whole month of summer didactics where we would learn uh, day in, day out, and then that rolls right into the medical ethics consult service. It was kind of part of the program. And for the rest of the year, every Wednesday we would meet, we'd have ethics case conference, there'd be a lecture on whatever the year's topic is. And that'll be around noon. And then in the afternoon, uh, about three o'clock to five o'clock, we would have ethics case conference. We would take different consultations that we'd received during the week or during the time previous, and we would discuss these in kind of a, a grand rounds or open forum discussion. Sometimes I would get, get a little heated, but um, it was always very spirited discussion. I think the best thing that we took away from that was we approached everything from so many different perspectives, different political views, different religious views, different um, lifestyles and backgrounds. And we were able to create with this cohort a safe space that allowed for open dialogue, discovery, and communication. And people weren't judged, but we would be able to talk and, you know, this you know, just look at other people's ideas and concepts and and all of those different values helped us uh, broaden our worldview and in doing so prepared us for different worldviews from our patients. So I was able to complete that year-long fellowship. Uh, it's fantastic, you know, during the week. For a couple of weeks, you would round on or you would cover the ethics consultation service. So you'd carry the pager. If there was a consult, they would consult medical ethics, just like any other service. And you would go see the patient. You would see the family members if they were involved or the, the clinical staff and kind of get that picture, get that story, get the background, and then look at different principles and concepts and philosophies when it comes to medical ethics to determine the best course forward. So it was an, a year of, of challenge, you know, wrapping your head around some of these ethical conundrums. A lot of what we did was, you know, review the state laws and policies, 
review the hospital policies, and coordinate that with the care team. We would try to separate kind of our clinical hat. I would no longer be an anesthesiologist, although ironically, like anesthesia was involved with a lot of these clinical ethics cases between our, our, what the work we do in obstetrics, pediatrics, the operating room, and the ICU. So it's always kind of mixed up and kind of messy. So it was very interesting and, and nice to be involved in everything. So um, we would a lot of what we did also was to coordinate family meetings and family discussions. I remember one ethics case that, I mean, we must have had like 15 different specialists in the room between um, maternal fetal medicine, OB, anesthesia, um, uh, endocrinology, the IC or medical ICU doctors. And we would coordinate these family meetings and make sure everybody's on the same page and we have open dialogue and discussion. After that year of fellowship, I was super excited to really go forward and continue to work in this field. I then transitioned into the Navy, right? So I swore in during residency and then I joined the Navy. So I went to my Naval Medical Treatment Facility and, of course, was happy to join the Medical Ethics Committee. And I, you know, I was kind of introduced to the concept of rank structure. Um, you know, everybody's kind of equal footing pretty much in the civilian world, especially when it comes to clinical medicine and medical ethics. So I had to learn very quickly. You know, I remember one of the first meetings we had, there was a person who needed to take psychiatric medication and essentially would need to be, the question was, do we force this person or not? They were in florid psychosis and needed to be medicated. So we had a long talk about autonomy and uh, the patient's family and all these different concepts. And at the end, there was a very high-ranking individual who kind of was, was former active duty, was now retired. And they were like, yeah, well, um, it's a great chat. We'll talk with the commanding officer of the hospital and then see what they want to do. So I was kind of like, wow. So we just talked about that for so long for nothing because it's uh, the military. There's a rank structure in place. There's policies, there's protocols. And whatever the commanding officer wants for a lot of issues is what happened. So that was something to wrap my head around. I had to dig deeper. I had to read and figure out, you know, where I could push back against um, different concepts in the military that I didn't necessarily agree with or I didn't, you know, advocate for autonomy when appropriate. The military is run by instructions. They write down like kind of list of rules and instructions and, and protocols for pretty much every situation. So I was able to dig deep into that and figure out a lot of the protocols, whether it's for, you know, refusal of the flu vaccine or refusing to provide um, uh, maternal care, including termination of pregnancy. Uh, what is the Department of Defense's policy on elective termination of pregnancy? And what are the responsibilities to the patient, whether the patient's active duty or civilian or civilian family member uh, dependent? Um, other things like um, medical privacy, so HIPAA and how, you know, there's exceptions for the military for your medical information. Can you refuse vaccinations? What are the ethical implications of that? What does the military instruction say? So it was a very interesting time to really kind of dig into the military as a whole because a lot of the things that would come up, there was a policy on. Whether or not you, like, agreed with the policy is one thing, but it had probably already been spoken on. Obviously, there's Guantanamo Bay. So I, you know, one of the 
opportunities I had rather for my military career was spending a month in Guantanamo Bay. So I flew down there on the island. There's a small hospital. There's like, hey there, I hope you're enjoying listening to the show. I want to take a minute to talk about TrueLearn and thank them for sponsoring the Black Doctors podcast. TrueLearn is a medical exam preparation company that helps you outperform on your boards. If you are a medical student or resident physician, you should definitely check out their products. If you sign up, please use the code BDPODCAST and you'll get a discount. They have resources for both DO students as well as MD students and even physician assistants. When it comes to residency licensure, they offer question banks for over eight different specialties. TrueLearn gives analytics that give you insight into your study habits, your question responses, and tracks you along with your peers. Students and residents average 20% improvements after completing a TrueLearn smart bank. Check them out at truelearn.com. And again, remember to use the code BDPODCAST to receive your special discount. Now back to the show. spending a month in Guantanamo Bay, so I flew down there on the island there's a small hospital there's like a surgeon an obstetrician a couple of internists like an er doctor too and a crna and anesthesiologist so i flew down there for a month to cover for the anesthesiologist he had to fly back take his boards so i was able to go down there you know i did some anesthesia at the the hospital there got to walk around tour the base i went to camp x-ray where the uh, quote-unquote detainees were first brought at the beginning of the war, could see the airfield that the that prisoners really were brought to. And all of that history from 15, 20 years ago uh, was very alive. Um, I still have pictures from Camp X-Ray, that initial site. I mean, it looks like a prisoner of war camp, essentially. And just wood and barbed wire, it's kind of crazy to, to think about. You know, we, we house people um, in those uh, conditions. But and it is still standing, I guess, because of like the UN or NATO or whatever, like in case you need to investigate. So there's actually a new prison facility on the island. I didn't actually work there. Um, it was a different task force that managed that. But I was able to kind of immerse myself into that culture and, and kind of dig up what I could find out about from people that had been there for a long period of time. You know, there's there's still people over there, people that really haven't had a fair trial. Um, but you know, that's, that is what it is. Uh, with regards to medical ethics, you know, the concept of forced feeding, mandated feeding came up. I was actually able to build and deliver my first kind of grand rounds on clinical medical ethics while I was at Guantanamo Bay. So that was kind of the, the highlight of my time there. And of course, a lot of that centered around, um, forced feeding, like I mentioned before. And, you know, digging into the research for that, like some crazy stuff was uncovered, or I uncovered some some discrepancies in the fact that um, when it comes to force feeding, for example, the American Medical Association, the American Nurse Association, essentially a lot of the governing bodies say that, you know, we shouldn't engage in force feeding for violating patient autonomy. Um, ironically, the U.S. prison system does uh, condone force feeding. Um, and this is from research I did in like four years ago. So, you know, I don't know, I don't know if anything's changed since then, but it was a little ironic that the prison system was like, sure, we'll do it. Um, obviously there was force feeding that occurred on Guantanamo Bay. There was a couple of medical personnel that stood up and said, Hey, we're not going to participate in this. This violates our moral code. 
and there is like a you know well documented court case of what happened after you know uh, I'll say when it when it comes to clinical medical ethics when it comes to ethics in general um, everything you, you can control your own emotions your own opinions your own actions but you can't control the repercussions of those actions so sometimes medical ethics is as simple as you doing what you absolutely fundamentally believe to be correct and then dealing with whatever consequences may come thereafter. So there's well-documented stories of medical personnel that said, hey, we're not with this force feeding. And then, you know, I think they were ultimately kind of protected, but I don't think their careers really took off, um, uh, to say the least. So I was able to, you know, kind of dig deeper in that conversation. During my time in the military, I actually got a little more perspective, and it's at least a different a different perspective. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I worked with someone who was a corpsman, which is like a medic, and they worked in Guantanamo Bay way back in the day when it was uh, more robust, and basically talked about how with the the prisoners, there were some that were, I guess, quote unquote, worse dudes than the others, and they would say, hey we're all going to go on a hunger strike. And then a bunch of other folks that probably just got scooped up and weren't supposed to be there anyways, they're like, oh, yeah, we don't really want to do a hunger strike. But then the big bad guys were like, yeah, if you don't do a hunger strike, we're going to beat you up. So they were all had to do hunger strikes or they would be in, in trouble. And so the some of the guys that were just kind of like small fish, I guess, and they would kind of race to be the first one to get the feeding tube to be fed because that was a way they could get nutrition without being antagonized by their other um, prisoners. I don't know. That's word of mouth hearsay, but I thought it was an interesting, different perspective from somebody that was there with you know regards to the, the force feedings. So that's one issue that came up during my time in the service, you know, being on Guantanamo Bay. Another issue, I think I spoke a couple of weeks ago about the comfort and how, you know, you have like this big state department mission that goes out and the goal is to like help people and help other developing countries but is it really is this the best way to do humanitarian aid work because it's kind of uh comes with strings attached you let us into our country under your country you um look favorably right you're, you're earning good favor from all these countries that we probably oppress a little bit so you know how does that feel being a healthcare worker or care provider on one of those ships you're affiliated with the U.S. military, we're out there providing health care, and we are, you know, wearing a military uniform, right? There, there's people that are armed nearby. So is that is that cool? Is that the right thing to do? Um, other issues that came up, I'll have to speak more about, right, in a different episode. The comfort, um, we went to New York in the middle of the pandemic. So a lot of that is the, the politics and, and it's a high visibility mission that I'm sure made people's careers, but the Department of Defense needed to send a message. So they sent the comfort up to New York to provide out, uh, ICU care, um, regardless of the fact that the ship wasn't really equipped for it. We didn't have the staffing. Our staff, you know, we work at an extremely low acuity military hospital. So all of a sudden we're just supposed to like pick things up and ramp it up and go deliver world-class ICU care to the citizens of New York. Um, so there's, you know, a little, quite a bit of politics, which, you know, ethically is this didn't sit well. Um, I 
personally, you know, I had to choose, pick and choose battles to fight. And again, a lot of it comes down to me doing what was right and in my own judgment and suffering whatever consequences may have come with that. One issue, and I'll tell this story and then talk briefly about some of the four principles of clinical medical ethics, which again are autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. Personally, like my personal favorite is autonomy, and I think these principles differ depending on your culture, depending on the time period, depending on the clinical situation. But I lean very, very, very heavily towards autonomy. Patient autonomy for me reigns supreme. I believe patients should be able to, to be free to make whatever decisions they want about their health care. On the same token, you know, we, we say that as long as patients agree with what we want to do and, and ask for the things that we think make sense. But the second that they refuse the surgery that we think they should have or refuse to be intubated, um, you know, we're thinking, oh, my God, they're not they don't have capacity and we disagree with their ability to make decisions, which, in my opinion, is, is wrong because I, I am very pragmatic and either, you know, you people have autonomy to make what I think are bad decisions, as long as they understand the risk and benefits. So my big thing with medical ethics is um, fairly and bluntly explaining risk and benefits of different interventions and allowing patients to make their own informed decision, whether I agree with it, whether I don't. Um, I think that's something that people, you know, it, it bothers some people more than others because deep down inside, you know, some people want to do the right thing. They want all their patients to get well and have the absolute best outcomes. And I totally understand that. And I want that too. I want great outcomes for my patients, but I do not want those outcomes at the cost of stripping them of their autonomy. Um, so that's, that's one thing, one way I kind of differ from a lot of other people in medical ethics and you know, a lot of other clinicians, because I honestly think autonomy is one of the biggest things that, especially in our society, especially with our history of healthcare inequities and disparities, you know, I think autonomy is a, is a very big deal. Before I get into the principles, I, did, I just wanted to further elaborate, like the reason I think medical ethics is so important, the reason I jumped in with both feet is because, um, as I say, the tagline of the show, representation matters. If we're not in these rooms, we're unable to affect change. We're unable to help people make these very, very, very important decisions. There is instances, you know, COVID and they're making lists and algorithms for who should be prioritized for these vaccines, who should be considered for ventilation or, or who should get um, ECMO, the heart-lung machine. And as you build these lists and rubrics and algorithms, if you don't have a, a voice from a clinician level, from a ethics or policy level, you know, disadvantaged populations, disadvantaged people, uh, minorities, underrepresented minorities are going to be at risk and continue to have worse outcomes. So in this field, it's also important field of clinical medical ethics. I felt it was important for me to share my voice and help patients, especially in these very difficult times, make these very difficult decisions. That's why I pursued all this training. I'll close with the story. This is again from my time in the military. So there I was, uh, you know, as every good C story starts. So there I was uh, in the operating room, had a patient coming back for a laparoscopic appendectomy. Um, young patient, I uh, went out, saw them pre-op, young black uh, male enlisted, right? The military has officers, they've enlisted, enlisted folks are like lower ranking, they're usually younger, you're usually out of high school, probably didn't have college. Officers went to college, 
Winter Service Academies. So right there, you know, there's healthcare disparities, the socioeconomic status. Boom, there it is. Um, but, you know, overall, we kind of do a good job of just providing care because everybody has standard health care in the military. So some people do have a little bit better care because they're high ranking. But in general, we do a pretty good job. So I go out to the patient, black dude, uh, appendectomy, you know, the appendix out. So then I go to the operating room. We do a quick timeout before the, sur- the surgery. Sorry, I'm on call, so I'm checking my phone. We do a quick timeout. One of the surgeons who I knew pretty well, we were both pretty young. We were both, you know, Lieutenant Commanders 04s, uh, had been in for like two, three years at this time. He comes in, he's like, yeah, you know, we're going to do this uh, case open. And I was like, well, why are we doing it open? He's like, oh, well, the residents have to learn. You know, I was in Iraq. I did some open appendectomies. I said, well, does, does the patient know, like, what did you guys talk to the patient about? It's like, oh, well, um, you know, the, the residents have to learn because when they're deployed on a ship or whatever, they are going to have to, you know, they won't be able to do laparoscopic surgery. They need to know how to do it open. And I said, well, I mean, that's cool. But one, we're, we're not on a ship. We're not in Iraq. We're in Virginia. So why are we, we doing this, this procedure open? Did you discuss this with the patient? Did you consent the patient for open? And my partner was like, it's like, oh, well, you know, he referred to his senior partner who was a higher ranking individual, uh, um, 06. So like, uh, um, in the Navy, it's a captain in the army and air force. It's a Colonel, like a full bird Colonel. Cause they have a Eagle, um, collar device. So about this time, this, this captain walks in and was like, uh, yeah, you know, we're just gonna do this open. Uh, it'll be quick. It'll be no big deal. And I said, well, captain, um, you know, why are we doing this open? Oh, well, the residents have to learn. Um, yeah, he's a young guy. He won't care about a scar. I said, well, did he have the option? Was he given the option to say, like, I don't care about a scar. Like, I don't care if it's open. And then um, I, I, the uh, captain got a little heated and kind of yelled some stuff and was like, oh, well, yelled at me. You know, what is the uh, difference in outcomes or complication rates between an open appendectomy versus a laparoscopic appendectomy. And I said, sir, I don't know. I'm not a surgeon. I don't know what the rates are, but I do hope that you discussed these rates and these risks and benefits with the patient. Because ultimately it's not about open versus closed. It's up to the patient. You know, if there's no difference or there's no surgical indication to go one way or the other, was the patient fully consented that they had the option for a laparoscopic procedure versus an open appendectomy? So I looked around the room, um, you know, because it got a little heated. Everybody's looking at me like, yo, like, because, you know, I was in 04. This person was in 06. We were the highest in my my surgery buddy who was 04. We were the highest ranking people in the room. There was like a, a nurse who was an 01 or 02. Then there was a bunch of enlisted like techs, you know, surgical techs and whatnot. So they're all looking at us like, oh, what's going what's going on? And I looked at the, the scrub nurse black uh, woman. I looked at her. I said, you know, when you see the patient, you'll understand. And we walked out. And as soon as she saw the patient, she looked at me and was like, yeah, I got it. So I was torn, right? I was stuck between what I thought was right um, with patient autonomy. Was the patient fully consented? Was this person about to get taken advantage of? Um, or, you know, do I trust the senior um, partner, the senior surgeon that they did the right thing in terms of consent? So by the time that I was kind of at this um, 
this uh, fork in the road. Like, what do I do? Do I keep pushing? Because I've already like, you know, stirred up the hornet's nest. Do I just ratchet it all the way up? Um, this surgeon kind of came up to me. He apologized for raising his voice. Um, and he said that he had discussed the risk benefits, um, everything with the patient and the patient had agreed to that. So, um, but he's like, you know, we should all be here to support the patient and, and blah, 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 whatever. So now I'm stuck. Like, do I take their word for it or do I still go talk to the patient? And at that point, you know, I said, you know, I'm going to trust that this person did the right thing and, and actually discussed this with the patient. And I'm not going to keep pushing. And the least I could do was, yeah, I think I stayed and did the full case. I could have gone and went home early, but um, I stayed with the patient. You know, I still kind of felt like a failure. I still felt like I kind of let, let this brother down. Didn't feel great, but I knew I had tried to do the right thing. And I knew I kind of set an example for the people in the room that you, know, you can always speak truth to power. There may be ramifications, maybe consequences. But um, that was one situation that, that occurred. So, so in that, you know, the four ethical principles, because every ethics lecture that you have talks about the four principles, but are they really applied? And I want to dig deeper over the next like couple of months as I continue this series on clinical medical ethics and provide these difficult situations in which these uh, principles are, are applied. So autonomy, right? That patient had the autonomy to say, hey, I'd rather, you know, look at the risk and benefits. I'd rather have a laparoscopic procedure um, versus an open procedure. You're stripping their autonomy, right, if you didn't provide a full, thorough, informed consent. Um, when it comes to beneficence, you know, I just wanted what was good for the patient, what I thought was good for the patient. You know, my judgment is limited because I am not a surgeon. I don't know the... Um, complication rate and all that stuff about open versus laparoscopic. I'm pretty sure I know what I would want, but I'm, you know, I, I think I'm doing the right thing, but you know, ultimately the surgeon may have a reason for me. It was more so the inconsistency. You know, there's some surgeons out there that'll be like, Hey, I only do open uh, epidectomies. Cool. Well, you know, there's no difference in treatment or care, but literally like we would always do everything laparoscopic. So the fact that you're doing things open is like, Hmm, yeah, that, that doesn't that doesn't pass the vibe check. Non-maleficence, do no harm, right? You're opening his, his belly, you're, you're leaving a scar, you're doing other stuff. Um, are you really doing what's right for the patient? And then justice. I, I immediately sat down in the room. I texted a friend who was a military surgeon. And I, I kind of brought up this situation. I left out the uh, complexion of the patient. And the friend was like, yeah, you, you know, military surgeons, they have to learn how to do open appendectomies. And I was like, okay. And then it was like, dot, dot, dot. You know, somebody's texting. And this friend said, they're black. I was like, yeah. So then they, they called me. We chatted for a bit. And it was like, yeah, it's a tough situation. But, you know, justice. Would they have, and, and the patient was, you know, a young dude. He was small. Had a good body habitus. So it would have been a, a quote, unquote, good teaching case. But, you know, justice. If you had an admiral who was also a good teaching case, would you be doing and open um, appendectomy just so the residents could learn. If you had, you know, your your brother or your mother, and uh, would you do an open appendectomy in them just because it's a good teaching case? So how are you making that decision on what is a teaching case and who gets a scar for their appendix out and who, who doesn't? So thanks for indulging my ramblings on uh, medical ethics. 
talking about you know why I jumped into this field, the things I've learned so far. So excited to continue to share with you as I continue along in this journey. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Black Doctors podcast. Uh, if you haven't yet, you know, follow us on Spotify, follow us on Apple Podcasts, and leave a review, leave a rating. We've actually jumped up to like, I don't know, 80 reviews on Apple, and then I think like 15 or 20 on Spotify, which again, is fantastic, blown away, really helps the show get out there in front of people and grow. Um, shout out to our sponsors, True Learn and Picmonic. They've been rocking with us all year. We've also had a couple other sponsors along the way. We are gearing up, you know, we'll probably launch season seven at the start of the new year, um, looking for new sponsors or same old sponsors. You know, if you want to give us money, you want to support the show, you want to get your company, uh, your, your, you want to get your company out in front of, I think we get about 12 to 1500 listeners a week. Shout out to, to you that's tuning in. If you want to get your company out there, your product, uh, your services, give us, uh, my emails are open. You can follow me on, uh, or actually, uh, Stephen Bradley MD at gmail.com is my email address. You can visit the website for the podcast and you can link us there. Uh, we'd love to partner with you as, uh, you know, hopefully in the future, get some more giveaways, be able to support, uh, more students and support more diversity in medicine. I think I covered everything. Um, always appreciate feedback for the show. I do all the audio editing. I do all the music. Um, stay tuned. You know, Instagram is where I post a lot of my music content, my music creation at Stephen Bradley MD on Instagram and follow the, the podcast Instagram as well at the Black Daughters Podcast. Your support definitely matters. Uh, we appreciate you rocking with us. And tune in next week to another episode of the Black Doctors podcast because representation matters. 